me a mission, I got demons to slay. Communication made you talk in this way. What's going on, Anxious World? I got a quick message for you. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention offers these helpful tips. One, focus on what is in your control. Two, do what helps you feel safe. Three, stay in the present. And four, connect with others. If you need help right now, please text TALK to 741-741 for the crisis text line. Anxious world, what's going on everybody? I thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Anxiety About Anxiety podcast. Like always, I'm your honored and blessed host, Keith, back to share these inspirational stories. And I know, I know for, you know, my followers out there, my supporters out there. Now, I know I said I was going to do the podcast a bi-weekly schedule. I was really, I really was, you guys, but I couldn't help myself, man. I, I feel like the world needs to hear these stories more often than than just every two weeks. I have so many. So it's like, you know, I kept on going back and forth with myself. Like, do I do, do I really want to do it every two weeks? I mean, yes, it, it allowed me time to, to better produce the episodes or, you know, advertise it and, you know, get, get more eyes and ears on it. But, man, I, something just told me, like, yo, just do it every week, man. It's, I've been doing it that way for two years. Something inside of me just saying, you know, keep pushing for it on an every week schedule. You're going to make it through. You'll be able to, you know, you know, highlight every episode as best as you can. And so, hey, so we're going to go back to the regular schedule. Sorry, you guys, for anybody that thought that I was going to do every two weeks. I switched it up just a tad bit. So, yeah, we back. So on this episode, man, I'm so honored. This guy has became like a, a friend to me, a distant friend, but a friend to me. Somebody I can, you know, can can talk to, and uh, I value his his words of encouragement. I value his his brain and, and and what he's trying to do for men in general, in particular. I should say, um, this gentleman' name is Mark Wells. Mark is a police officer in the UK. And he was, you know, kind enough to share his story and, you know, talk about what he'd been through. Uh, Mark was diagnosed with PTSD, burnout, anxiety, amongst other things. And uh, he went through a traumatic time um, recently, I believe in uh, 2020, 2021, you know, all the stuff that we've been dealing with. Uh, he went through some traumatic situations and um, it didn't, you know, he, he was struggling through it. And he was almost at his wit's end, man. He was almost at his end, you know. But he, he found that 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 courage and that that motivation to make it through and to survive. Keyword survive. And now he's here sharing his story, and he's he's been a voice for mental health and being a voice for men out there, for all the men in the world out there. And he created an awesome Facebook group, you guys. I want all you guys to go check it out. You know, I, I follow it. Um, I know he's he just started it, but it's growing by the by the day. It's called the Legacy of Men, Confidence, Meaning, and Anxiety Control for Men. 
So all you guys out there, I want you guys to go search that. I'm going to leave a link in the description so you guys can go, you know, go check that out and uh, follow Mark and uh, look at all his work and all the encouraging tips and, you know, conversations that he having for all the guys out there. I really think it will help some some people out. I know it's going to help me out. His friendship's going to help me out. And Mark, I thank you so much for being a voice for mental health, being a voice for men and just sharing your story. You know, just being, you know, open and honest and vulnerable and not really caring about what anybody say or think about you. Because, you know, the end result is you're going to help somebody out. So many guys out there, guys and girls, but in particular men out there that's, that don't know how to express what they're going through. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to think about it. Just want to hide it all in and just kind of be, you know, that macho man, you know. And he's going to show you how you open up and you, you talk about what you're going through. So, Mark, once again, my friend, I thank you a million times over. This episode means a lot to me. I, I didn't listen to it like three or four times already. And, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to follow Mark throughout my journey. You know, I'm going to follow him, and I hope you guys do too. So the title of his episode is uh, Man Moving Forward from Broken Back to Brilliance. And you guys see why his story is so encouraging so honorable, so motivating. I love it. So, Mark, thank you, my brother. I really appreciate it. So, let's jump back into well, let's jump into this episode with Mark. And to all my supporters out there, I thank you. We're gonna have a great 2022. Uh, so many stories. We're gonna help people out. We're gonna we're gonna change the stigma by any means necessary. So, thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I'll be back next week. Everybody stay safe and be blessed. Hi, guys. Um, my name's Mark. And I'm uh, an almost 41-year-old police officer here in the, in the UK. Um, I police an area about an hour north of London. Um, class probably semi-rural but as any police service anywhere in the world we all have very similar problems we do with trauma we do with grief and when people are running away from those sort of things we are we're running towards it but this podcast isn't about um my work as a police officer as such it's more about um my experience and my journey my breakdown my diagnosis of ptsd and then my recovery and really lastly what I'm doing now with myself so um, first of all I'd like to thank you for, for joining me to listen to this uh, story I'd like to thank uh, Keith that runs Anxiety About Anxiety for giving me the opportunity to, to share with you guys and to give something back to people that need it to give some help um, some inspiration and some hope so maybe the men and the women out there listening to this that um, find themselves in the same pond of pity, mud, sludge, and muddy grief that I found myself in. Um, so what I am actually is a, <clears throat> is a husband, uh, a father, a son, a brother, and a friend who works as a police officer. And I'm, I'm just a police officer that had uh, a breakdown. It was the uh, summer of 2020, midway through the COVID pandemic, um, and I was burnt out. I was anxious and I was suffering the symptoms of PTSD. Um, at the same time, my father had had a, a, a cancer diagnosis that was terminal and he has sadly since passed away. But um, I'm no one special. I'm just a guy living his life, 
um, who hit some hard times during the course of living my life. Um, uh, so what I've had to do is focus my attention solely on reacquainting myself with with myself in order to get to get better again. Um, what I will say now is, looking back, I'm actually nothing but grateful for my experience. I know that sounds kind of counterproductive to what this is all about, but I generally am grateful and consider it a gift, and I'll explain why um, a little bit later. But what I, what I will say is that I describe my journey as as three battles, really. Um, I would say the the first battle is realising that something is wrong and actually accepting it. The second battle is dealing with it and working out what you need to do, what I need to do to get better. And then the, the third battle is returning back to a normal life, back to work, back to a new purpose um, and to a new beginning really I suppose with more clarity. And that in itself is a battle on its own. Um, but as we go through this podcast, I'll explain a bit more about that. My um, my symptoms of PTSD and the associated symptoms, they haven't simply vanished from my life, and, and that's okay. I've accepted that, but I have developed some, some tools to maintain the symptoms, and I've probably turned myself into my own little mind mechanic. Um, I've identified my problems, and uh, <clears throat> looked at the cause, and kind of dealt with that. Um, and now I'm sort of working on the ongoing maintenance to make sure that it doesn't happen to me again. It does take discipline and it does take focus um, and that's really where the accountability to oneself sets in and the victim mentality has to stop. But how many symptoms do I have now? Probably most of them appear sporadically. They don't just disappear overnight. And then I just vanish with a bit of therapy and then we go off to a world of fluffy niceness. I mean, that, that doesn't happen. I think what's different now is how I recognise these thoughts and feelings and how I manage myself when I notice them. Uh, and over time they have subsided and things are continually getting better and improving, but they're still there. They're still there. Do I feel hard done by? Do I blame anyone or anything? Do I think, why me? No. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. I think, why not me? Um, as I say, I generally now could be more grateful for my experience because of the journey of self-discovery I've, I've now found myself on and and what my priorities really are in this life. And in doing so, I now have a yearning to help others to make sure they can avoid falling in the pond of sludge as well. So, I'll take you back to the summer of 2020, September time. Um, I was at the height of my career, I had a great summer. Myself and my colleague, who was also one of my dearest friends, uh, we'd been teamed together to work on a proactive enforcement team which focused largely on organised crime groups in a small market town and uh, dealing with drugs. And we were busy, uh, we were really, really busy, uh, as well as placing the pandemic, which was incredibly stressful. We were incredibly busy. Um, and as such, I was finding that I was starting to get symptoms that I hadn't had before. Symptoms that were starting to manifest themselves that um, I hadn't really experienced before. Um, and I kind of started off with, with things like um, anger and aggression. I'd, I'd be looking for confrontation sometimes. Um, I feel paranoid, I feel like 
maybe people talking about me at work or at home. And if I saw doors shut and quiet conversations taking place, I'd, I'd just simply assume they'd be about me. It'd be something I'd done and a rest I'd made or something I'd said or the state of my work. Well, I had no evidence to suggest that at all. That was uh, my paranoia. Another thing I had was hypervigilance. Um, so I would analyse and consider everything and everybody I would come into contact with. Um, I was always in cop mode, looking for offences, looking at people and watching their movements. And this is even off duty. Um, I couldn't ever switch off. The slightest noise that would be mildly loud, I would uh, jump out of my skin, raise my fists, ready to attack, um, resulting in then losing my temper. And it'd be something simple like a cupboard door banging or something being dropped on the kitchen floor. I was just in a constant state of apprehension and expecting all of the time. Imagine that. Expecting something to go wrong every second of every day. Ready to be hurt, ready to be attacked. I had insomnia and sleep anxiety, so when I'd come off my night shift, so I wouldn't sleep for more than two or three hours, I'd get into bed at about eight in the morning and I would be awake again, 11 or 12, midday at the latest, and then I'd be right through again. I'd, I'd be awake all the way through and do another night shift. Um, I would feel exhausted, physically and mentally drained. Um, be making life-changing decisions, working dynamically on a little more than four hours sleep, and certainly less than five hours sleep. And at the same time, I'd be driving police vehicles at high speed, that little amount of sleep in me, that my ego wouldn't allow me to accept that something was right. My ego wouldn't let me say to the guys at work, you know, guys, I'm, I'm struggling, because I didn't want to admit it. And then I start to get, as things progressed, I start to get sleep paralysis, and this was particularly scary, because it probably, it probably was one of the most frightening and scariest things I've ever had to experience, and believe me, in my line of work, I've experienced some frightening and scary things. Um, but I'd find myself in a semi-lucid state uh, in between being awake and asleep. But I was awake because I was conscious. And all of a sudden I had difficulty breathing. It was like I could breathe out, but I couldn't breathe in. It was like this weight on my chest. Like a demon, almost throttling my windpipe. And I couldn't move my body. I can only describe it as some invasive, heavy demonic weight pressing down on my chest and I'd be totally paralysed. Couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe in. And I could only breathe out, which means I'd be exhaling, exhaling air and not being able to replace it. And I'd be taking small gasps of air just to try and stay alive. And I remember it so clearly. It happened so many times. And I, I couldn't move. And I felt like I needed to twist my body to take a big gulp of breath. And eventually I'd managed to break the paralysis just by maybe moving a digit, maybe moving a finger or a toe. And then I'd be able to breathe and my heart would be thumping inside the wall of my chest. And many times this happened, I was convinced I was dying. Um, but somehow I'd always managed to summon the energy from the pit of my being uh, to move a small part of my body that would almost shock the rest of my body into breathing again. Actually one of the most horrific things ever experienced and now I experienced on numerous occasions that is the one symptom now that's gone and hopefully gone for good um, I was getting skin problems joint pain I've always been a sufferer of 
mild psoriasis, but I was finding that in that summer, due to the, sh- the stress we are under at work, the pandemic, um, some problems at home, not necessarily marital problems, but there was problems at home, um, and we just moved house. But my skin started to flare up, it really started to, the welts of psoriasis started to really get exaggerated, and I'd be getting new breakouts on my leg. And the joints of my finger would start to swell, and, and my left hand would often throw up an ache, and my fingers would swell, uh, to the point where I had to remove my wedding ring. Um, and often I'd get pains in my hips, and my pelvis, and my uh, my shoulders, and my neck, and my knees. At this time, I was quite an avid gym guy, I do a lot of weightlifting. Um, quite an active guy, and I've been in agony some days. And, and I just put it down to doing too much physically at the age of 40 at the time. I just thought, you know, uh, that, this is what you're meant to feel like at 40. This is kind of what happens. And the other thing was, I was getting stomach problems, IBS. And this is the last thing you want as a frontline police officer, but I've always struggled a little bit in my stomach on and off when I've come up against stressful situations, even prior to police work, even when I was a civilian. Um, but it was getting worse and worse and worse. And my actual daily intake of loporamide was getting higher and higher. In fact, I was taking um, things like Imodium tablets, like they were candy sweets, just chugging them down my neck just to get through the day. So that was one less stress I had about having a, an IBS attack. Um, I had a lack of motivation. I was, I was overly emotional. I was isolating myself a lot as well not just from friends, but also from family. That was particularly difficult for me because I'd finish work, I'd come home, and I'd just go and sit in the bedroom on my own. I wouldn't spend any time with my wife and my children. And quite often my wife would say to me, Mark, you're isolating yourself. Why are you shutting yourself away from us? But the truth was, I couldn't bear to be around people. I couldn't bear the chaos of children. I couldn't bear been with anyone or anything other than my own thoughts. That's so, again a really sorrowful place to be when you're a family man with three young children. But another thing I had that was kind of a new thing was this over urgency and franticness. So if there was a task to be done, I would I would make sure that I did everything I could to get that done as quickly as possible. I had to get it done. Even if I didn't have to get it done, in my mind I had to get it done, and I'd be frantic. Everything was 100 mile an hour, and I'd be racing around trying to do everything, but finishing nothing. Uh, and this in turn would of course frustrate the hell out of me, because I couldn't finish what I was trying, so I was taking on too much, and then my mood would worsen still. And I would see tasks and projects that I wanted done around the house, and insist on doing them straight away. And it was like I couldn't ever relax until every task or project was complete. Of course. This is impossible, and because of the way I was, I couldn't even properly complete one task, let alone the numerous projects that I had identified. I also had, and it seems like the list of symptoms are endless, as I'm going through them, I can't believe I had so many and didn't recognise it really, but alcohol abuse. Now, when I say alcohol abuse, I wasn't drinking heavily in the way you would expect, but I've never been a heavy drinker. I've always liked the odd beer at home or with friends, but I've never been a big drinker. But after my last night shift, I've become quite reliant on drinking three or four, three or four beers just to get me semi-drunk so I could fall asleep. Otherwise, I'd be up all night because my body clock would be knackered. My body clock would be all over the place. Um, 
and it wouldn't matter how tired I was, I just wouldn't be able to sleep without some beer inside me. Obviously, this was counterproductive because uh, alcohol was a depressant. I'd have a disturbed sleep. I'd be up and, up and down all night because I've been drinking alcohol, and then the following day I'd be very, very depressed and very, very tired. And as things progressed in terms of my symptoms, it became habit that if I was if I was at home, not at work, the following morning I'd have a couple of beers, and I would say to myself, "Oh, mate, you deserve this. You had a hard week, mate. You had a tough week." But looking back now, I was doing it for respite, just to take me away a little bit, to relax, to settle me down. And again, of course, this was, this was counterproductive. Now, one of the last symptoms that started to manifest itself, and this is one that I still have now, and is probably the most prominent, was memory loss. And it was probably two or three weeks before I had the major breakdown that my memory loss so prominent, I could not remember a thing. Now, largely this was because I was burnt out and I was overwhelmed, but I could not remember a thing. I'd arrest someone and I'd get them into the custody block, or jail as you call it in America. But by the time I'd got there, I'd forget their name or forget what I'd arrested them for. Uh, not always, and not always helpful when an already, already sergeant was glaring down at me from, the, from his desk, which would then put me under pressure, it didn't make me worse. Um, Worse than I'd get back to do my paperwork or write my statements. And I'd forget the circumstances under which I'd just arrested someone. I would try and submit intelligence about incidents unattended, but I'd forget them. Um, my wife would be constantly reminding me of conversations that we had or things we'd arranged to do that would simply just slip from my mind. And by now my brain was overloaded and it was overloaded by everything and it was simply it was simply that there was no further space for any memory retention. My attention span was really that of a frantic goldfish and, and nothing stayed lodged in my mind for more than a moment. And then I'd probably say the, the last main symptom, which is what I call a, an umbrella symptom. This was the main one that all the other symptoms I've just listed fell underneath and that was just acute anxiety. It was there 24-7, day in, that I'd wake up, I was anxious, I'd go to bed anxious, I'd be grinding my teeth, I was in a constant state of apprehension and expectance, and, and I could probably never really tell you why at the time, um, it was just a permanent dread of something, something I didn't know, it was almost like it was a fear of fear itself, that I'd be anxious over being anxious, ironically, um, and it would feed into my insomnia, my IBS, my hypervigilance, my attention span, my confidence, my self-esteem, it was all shrinking and being sapped from me because of my anxiety. It was, uh, it was like it was the daddy of all symptoms, like a nucleus of a big ball of electric emotions, where all the other symptoms just spurred off of it. So the day it happened, the, the, the day that the wheels really put off of me, I was on a I was on an advanced driving course. Um, I was just taking up my new posting in um, a roads policing and firearms unit here in the UK. And part of that posting is, and part of the conditional offer for that posting is to complete an advanced driving course. Now, to, to give you some idea, that advanced driving course, if you pass that, that puts you in the top 3% drivers in the country. So you can imagine, if you will, how 
intense and how stressful that is. And that's a three-week intensive course. So for those three weeks, I'll stay away from home, away from my wife, away from my children, because it's an exhausting course, and it takes every ounce of mental energy during the day because you're driving at such high speed. <clears throat> now I was about midway through the course, and the build-up to this this course had been quite difficult for me. I had a busy summer at work, as I've said. We had the COVID pandemic. My father had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Um, I'd fallen out one of my dearest friends, um, who ironically also suffers from PTSD, and there'd been an absolute miscommunication in some things that happened. As a result, we had a catastrophic fallout. So to me, that was like a bereavement, a betrayal and a bereavement. And that, that hurt me. Um, and I was ruminating, ruminating on that daily, and because my mental health was going downhill with the PTSD, actually I, I tended to latch onto that, but probably a bit too much and focus on it. But <clears throat> nevertheless, I'd taken myself on this course, and I was midway through it, it was day nine, and I was on a day run in a, in a big, souped up BMW uh, 330D twin turbo, very quick vehicle. There's myself, the instructor beside me, and two colleagues, all on the assessment. And I'm averaging speeds of 145 mile an hour, and it's about two o'clock in the afternoon, and we are traveling at pace along a busy motorway with lots of busy intersections. Um, and I'm meant to be doing a commentary as I'm driving. I'm meant to be com- commentating on what I'm seeing and what I'm doing and the speeds and the weather conditions and all of the things you see on the on the COP programs. And then all of a sudden, I kind of blur out. So I'm driving at high speed, busy day, busy roads, and I blur out. I find myself daydreaming, momentarily I'm daydreaming about fence panels. That's right, fence panels. There I am in a police vehicle at 145 mile an hour with blue lights on, sirens blaring, doing a commentary, and I stop because I'm thinking about fence panels. The, uh, the instructor, come on, Mark, wake up, wake up, what are you doing? And I'm, I'm awake again, and I'm like, whoa, that frightened me. How dangerous was that? There three people in the car with me. There's members of the public on the road, and I'm in my own little world of fence panels. So I pull over, I find somewhere safe to pull over, I pull over, and I say, say to the instructor, sir, I'm sorry, you know, just give me ten minutes, can someone else drive? I just need to gather myself again. Inside I was a mess, terrified me. I've been grinding my teeth during that drive. My my neck was so tense, my shoulders were tense. And I thought, I'm just going to try and not drive anymore this afternoon. So we stopped for lunch. And by this time, normally, because the course was so intense, I'd used up so, many, so much mental energy, I'd be ravenous and want to eat a big lunch. But the thought of putting food in my mouth made me, made me want to vomit. And as hungry as I was, I just couldn't eat. I could not eat. And I was kind of pushing my food around the plate and the other guys were winding their food into them and drinking their drinking their soda waters and chatting and laughing like we normally do. Couldn't eat. And they noticed it and I just blamed on having a headache, which wasn't true. I was detached. Absolutely. I felt almost felt like I was in a bubble, in my own little bubble looking looking outwards at other people and there's like an electric buzz in my ears, an electric buzz in my eyes and <clears throat> I almost felt like my teeth were buzzing. It was it was a strange feeling. I felt detached. Anyway, the day continued. We got back to police headquarters um, about five o'clock, and we all agreed to go to a chicken restaurant um, for dinner. Me and some of the other boys, and we went. 
And it was a good night. None of us are drinking alcohol because obviously we were on a driving course and we had a good night. But um, and I was more or less back to my normal self. Come eight o'clock, I was deathly tired. And it just hit me like a freight train. Deathly tired. I couldn't get my eyes open. So I said to the guys, so the guys, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to my room. I need to find my wife, which wasn't true. I just wanted to get away. I was getting overwhelmed. The noise in the restaurant was too much. The clanking of the glasses, the plates clashing together, people laughing and joking all around me. My hypervigilance had gone into overdrive, and I felt like I was in a, a tailspin of noise and chaos. So I made my excuses and I went back to the back to my room, which was a short drive back to police headquarters in my my little room. We all have sort of rooms there for staff on courses. And I crawled into bed at eight o'clock in the evening and I fell asleep. I went straight to sleep into a deep, deep sleep. But I was woken up at 2300, I was woken up by a bang on the door and it was two drunk trainee constables. We call them police, police officers and police constables in the UK. Um, trainee constables had come back from the local pub, they probably had a bit too much Guinness. <clears throat> and they bumped into my door and the bat I thought, thought I was being shot at. I jumped out of bed in my underwear and I was like, fucking hell was that and it just triggered this anxiety attack in me that I just went into rage blind fury red mist rage and I was about to grab that door and open that door and I was going to kill these two. literally I was going to beat these guys to a pulp I'm a police officer what am I thinking but that's how I felt and I I managed to stop myself. It was almost like this small little rational angel on my shoulder was like, Mark, no, calm down. Think about what you do, who you are, your reputation. You're a police officer. You don't behave like this. And I knew that was right. I knew that was the right thing to do. So I sat on the end of the bed in this tiny little box room on my own and my heart's thumping. I've got pains down the inside of my arms. My jaw is aching. My mouth has gone dry like cotton mouth. In actual fact, they're all the telltale signs of the onset of a heart attack. And that's what I'm thinking, I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm 40 years old, and this is where my days end. In this little smelly box room, in police headquarters, on my own, and I'm dying. What I know now was it was a massive panic attack and anxiety attack. But I've just convinced myself I'm dying. So that what that does then, then it amplifies my symptoms. So then my heart is absolutely thumping. And I'm thinking, what do I do? If I phone my wife, I'm going to worry her. And if I phone, it's going to be too late anyway. My ego wouldn't let me knock on the guy's room next door. Just turning up in my underwear saying, I think I'm dying. But my ego wouldn't let me do that, because that's just kind of not what men do, is it? So I just sat on the end of that bed waiting to die. And I sat. And I waited. And I waited. And all that happened was my anxiety got worse. My heart was beating harder. My thoughts were racing more. In actual fact, the anxiety by now was, rather than just like butterflies in my stomach, it was like a swarm of, of angry bees in my stomach, rolling and flying around in a ball that was so tangible that I could have ripped it out of my stomach, turned it to a football and kicked it down the hallway. That's how I felt. Um, I'm shaking, my, I'm gripping my fists. And then I started thinking about my friend that I've fallen out with. And then the red mist comes back, the blind rage, the fury, 
and I was looking at the clock and it was going to be midnight I thought he's going to finish work soon I can meet him on the way home oh I can have it out with him I can really beat him up I can make him bad and I had to stop myself from getting into my car and driving the 40 miles to this guy's house I can't I was a police officer what was I thinking and again this little angel on my shoulder this little voice said no Mark And again, start to rationalise myself, snap back briefly to reality. No, I don't want to do that. And then I kind of realise now that the penny's starting to drop a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm stressed. This is anxiety. This is stress. So I think, well, I can do some breathing exercises here. I've learnt some breathing exercises in the past. I can do some mindfulness meditation, and I can breathe my way through this so I start to practice the techniques and then flashbacks start happening I have to be careful I'll explain these out of respect for family members that may stumble across this podcast and, and certainly I don't want to breach any day protection laws but I can vaguely talk about the flashbacks I was having and first of all there was the, um, the light aircraft crash that my colleague and I had been to earlier the winter before we watched a guy burn alive in the cockpit. His phone still in his hand. Flames went out of his chest. I just couldn't. It was so vivid, I couldn't get it out of my head. And then I managed to get rid of that thought and I'd settled down again. And then the hanging that I'd been to popped up. The guy hanging from the tree. His corpse swinging. The smell of it. And then I'd deal with that. And then the lady that was hit by the car, whose brains were splattered up the tree up the road. And then I'd deal with that and I'd settle down again. And then the suicide where a guy shot his head off with a shotgun. And there was an eyeball and a tooth by the corpse on the tree. And it was almost like, the way I can explain it is when you've got a computer and you're running multiple programs and you're trying to close your computer down, but as you shut it down, it pings up, another window pings up to remind you that there's a program still running. That was almost like my mind, my flashbacks. There were so many programs running that I hadn't shut down properly over the years. And they're coming back with a vengeance now. And it was almost like my mind was saying, bang, have some of that. Bang, have some of that. You didn't deal with this properly. Have some of that. Bang. And then I had the, the flashback of my daughter when she stopped breathing on my lap. And that was the one. That was the one that broke me. And this moment of realisation hit me. I was like, no, I'm having a breakdown. So this is what it feels like. I'm having a breakdown. And it was almost like momentarily I had clarity. I was back in reality and the penny had dropped. I was losing it. And I just curled up on the floor and I cried my eyes out. Ironically though, having then accepted and realised that this probably was a breakdown of some sort, I um, I felt mildly better. And I managed to go to sleep. And the last time I looked at the clock, it was five in the morning. That attack had lasted six hours. And I was exhausted. And what had made it worse was I had to be up at seven. Because I was on a 200-mile check run. And there's no way I was going to do that. So I thought, well, I'll have a little bit of sleep. And I'll just go and take myself off the course. And I will um, go and explain that I'm poorly, I'm ill. To the instructors in the office and I'll be back in a couple of weeks and all will be well 
So I thought, save myself some face, because again, my ego did not want to let me admit that I was poorly. Um, I go into the hospital earlier before the other lads and the other guys turn up, take myself as a course so I don't, so I don't have to see them. Um, and that was my plan. So at seven o'clock, I splashed the water over my face and I walked over to the over to the driver school unit, walked in and all the instructors, instructors are in there, um, in the office. And as I opened the door, they look up and say, morning, Mark. And there it is. I collapse and I burst into tears in front of a room full of other men, a room full of police officers, colleagues and peers. And there I am on my knees, crying. And I can't stop. I can't stop crying. And it won't stop. And I can't even tell you why I'm crying. It's almost like this this torrent of emotion has to come out. It has to come out. It's almost like I'd, I'd hidden it behind my staff vest for 10 years. And it was coming out now. They were good. I mean, they sat with me. They were good. And calmed me down enough to give me a coffee. I drove home. Still convinced that, um, still convinced that I was going to be back to work in two weeks. When in fact it was six months I was off work. So, long story short, the following day, um, I heard nothing from my job. I had no support really professionally. And, I had this yearning, I thought, I've got to do something, I've got to get better, because my wife had gone to work, I was in an empty house, my children were at school, my young daughter was at nursery, or kindergarten, and I'm in this house on my own, and I'm starting to get suicidal thoughts, I'm starting to think, God, I can't go on. I could just get on my motorcycle, I could just drive that into a brick wall at 100 miles an hour, that would, that would kill me. I know from experience that, that would kill me straight out. And then that little voice on my shoulder again, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. So what did I want to do? Well, I had no choice. I rang the doctor. The doctor said to me, yeah, we can refer you to the mental health team. It's going to take three months. Oh, I can't last three months like this. I can't. I phoned up um, the group that our police force recommends to give free counselling. They triaged me over the phone. It's Sorry, Mark, you're too far gone. We can't help you. You're too ill. You need some intense counselling. Some intense therapy. So I'm, I'm, I'm lost. I'm out on a limb. I've got no one around me. I've got no one to take control of the situation. No one to put their arm in and say, don't worry, Mark. We'll, um, we'll take care of this for you. I'm just left to my own devices. So again, I think, oh, I'll just hang myself. Look to my loft hatch. And then again, there's a little voice on my shoulder. No, Mark, you don't want to do that. So what I did do is I googled um, therapy for emergency services personnel. And I managed to find a lady quite local to me that, that specialised in police officers with PTSD symptoms. Now, I didn't really know what PTSD was at that time. I didn't. And what I, what I thought I knew was that it happened just to army personnel. I didn't really care much for mental health. I never really thought there'd be something that I would suffer from because I was a big strong police officer and certainly nothing that I'd ever have to worry about and here I was googling therapists to deal with it. A French lady called Claudia was my therapist and she um, she agreed to see me the following day and uh, there and then she said to me, no Mark, you're, you're very, very ill. You're very ill, I think you need 
therapy at least twice a week. She was incredibly worried about you. She said, I need to keep an eye on you. So there my therapy started twice a week for a few months. Expensive, but it was a, an investment in myself. I had to do that for my family, for my children. And then so what followed was a diagnosis, and the diagnosis was PTSD, triggered by burnout and anxiety. Um, and then around this time, my dad died as well. And uh, that made things incredibly difficult for my dad, for various reasons and childhood traumas, had been identified as one of my triggers. So the therapy continued, and I made progress. I made real progress, but then I felt like I plateaued. We went through different things. We went through my PTSD symptoms. We went through my flashbacks. We went through my childhood traumas, the domestic violence in the home, the things I had to witness as a kid. All of these things, all this baggage I carried was coming out at 40 years old. So it wasn't just a job. It was things I was carrying as well. As I say, I felt like I plateaued. And about four months into, into the therapy, felt that it kind of served its purpose. I felt like I was going to have a therapy session with my psychologist. Sorry, with my psychotherapist, rather. Um, and I was getting bored. I was thinking, oh, we've covered this. We've covered this. And it was around this time that I was then starting to get really interested in the science behind mindset and the science and the theories behind um, motivation. Um, and behaviours and, and applied psychology um, and I come back from therapy one day and I thought you know I can do this myself now and that was the the moment for me probably the pinnacle for me the pinnacle moment for me I can pinpoint that where things really changed and it was a switch in mindset it was a switch from feeling like a victim to losing the victim mentality now this might not work for everyone and everyone's story is different I get that but this is what worked for me and this is where this is what's now got me to where I am now so losing the victim mentality I realised I had to take ownership of the situation I had to take ownership of myself because nobody was going to come and fix me only myself it was me that was going to fix me so I then turned the therapy into once a week and eventually weaned it out of my life. And I started, I started to build myself a routine, a structure, a morning routine. I started to understand my purpose, my understand my whys for life. I started to get an understanding like a list of my habits, my bad habits, my habitual thinking, the stories I was telling myself, the self-stories, the negative self-talk loops, the things that would make me react rather than respond my triggers, why were they my triggers, why, why was I angry, what could I do to stop that, how could I make measured decisions, and my recovery then accelerated. So my prognosis from diagnosis was, was two years, within eight months I was back on the front line again, back carrying, back front line uniform police officer, and of course there's still some remnants, there's still something that I have is PTSD. And some days it's like having a really bad allergy to flowers and being plonked in a field full of roses and, and praying, praying for rain to come so it doesn't flare up my allergies. But most days I'm okay. 
and I recognised the signs. And whilst the psychotherapy was good, the changing point for me, the U-turn for me, was taking ownership and really accelerating my own recovery. Now, to give you an idea, when I've since spoken to my psychotherapist to say that I no longer need to see her at all anymore and, and explain to her what I've been doing myself and and she was in awe of my recovery, which is something I'm very, very proud of. And um, and she said to me, the day we met, I wasn't sure whether you were going to kill someone or kill yourself. And I have to say, she was absolutely correct. She was bang on the money. I was, was going to kill myself and I was potentially going to kill someone else. Now, I suppose that begs the question, what am I doing now? Well, if you recall, I said at the beginning of this podcast that I couldn't be more grateful for what happened to me. And the reason I'm so grateful is because I've used that experience to give back and help other people. I firmly believe now I've saved more lives coaching men and women than I ever did in the place. Um, I've written a, a coaching blueprint program, especially for men, and I coach them back to brilliance after burnout, breakdown, um, I give them confidence and self-esteem, I give them a purpose, and I give them more clarity, and I bring them back to being the man they should have been, could have been, and will be, again. Um, and that's a fantastic feeling. I also coach ladies as well, but um, my, my specific focus is on men, because that's where I can relate, and I know exactly what a professional burnout and breakdown feels like. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a unique, it's quite a unique system, it's a step-by-step system, it's a, it, it's a structured system, um, but what it means is that there's no room for error and there's only room for growth and progress. Um, so if you want to look me up and see what I do, you can follow me on Instagram. It's um, at man underscore moving underscore forward, as in going forward, at man moving forward. And I've got an Instagram page where I offer free um, coaching video blogs almost daily. Um, which is snippets from my book and from my uh, coaching program. Or you can find me on Facebook. Uh, my page is um, Man Moving Forward, at Man Moving Forward. Uh, and upon that page, there's a link to a private Facebook group, which is um, really for clients um, that are part of the coaching. It's where we have a bit more of an open forum and we discuss uh, things in a safe environment. The, uh, the page and the group are both called uh, Confidence Coaching Tips for Men. And whilst I say it's uh, a forum for clients, anybody can join, um, providing they answer the questions um, that are asked upon joining the group. Um, it's the same environment, it's an open forum, and that's where you get more of a direct contact with me, um, where we can discuss your problems and, and try to help you move forward so you don't find yourself in the, uh, in the pond of sludge, pity and grief that I found myself in nearly two years ago now. Um, I want to close this podcast by once again thanking you for taking the time to listen I hope it's given you some hope and maybe given you a bit of inspiration for your own personal journey um, I want to thank Keith as well for the opportunity to use this as a platform to share my story to help others and, and largely I'll, I'll leave you with this thought nothing will change until you do and in order for you to change your desire to change has to be greater than your desire to stay the same Guys, if you want to chat with me, 
please contact me on the platforms I've just mentioned. But for now, I'll bid you farewell and wish you well. And uh, thank you again for listening.